Welcome to this podcast from the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I am Dr. Michelle Ngong, Deputy Editor for the Annals, and on this podcast, we'll be having a discussion about provocative ideas about the early use of ECMO or ECOR in acute exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and other more common types of acute respiratory failure. I have here with me Dr. Daryl Abrams, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in the Division of Pulmonary, Allergy, and Critical Care. Dr. Abrams is the first author on two articles featured in the August issue of the Annals, titled Emerging Indications for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation in Adults with Respiratory Failure and Pilot Study of Extracorporeal Carbon Dioxide Removal to Facilitate Extubation and Ambulation in COPD Exacerbation. Also joining our discussion is Dr. Jerry Kreiner, Professor and Chair of the Department of Medicine and a member of the Section of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Abrams, Dr. Kreiner. Dr. Abrams, in your opinion and ideas piece on the emerging indications for ECMO in adults with acute respiratory failure, you raised several thought-provoking concepts about expanding the use of ECMO to milder ARDS and acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. Can you start today's podcast by discussing the difference between ECMO and ECOR and how this technology and the use of this technology has evolved over the years? So ECMO, although it's used generally to refer to an extracorporeal circuit in which gas exchange occurs through an artificial membrane, most accurately refers to an extracorporeal circuit in which the primary function is to provide oxygenation. Because oxygenation is directly related to the amount of blood flow through the circuit, patients with severe hypoxemia usually require large cannulae that can allow for high blood flow rates. Extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal, known as ECOR, more accurately refers to an extracorporeal circuit in which the primary goal is to correct hypercapnia and acidemia from respiratory acidosis. Current membrane oxygenators are extremely efficient at carbon dioxide removal at much lower blood flows than are required for oxygenation, which in turn means that smaller cannulae are needed to achieve adequate blood flow. ECMO has evolved over the last several decades with the development of increasingly efficient oxygenators, biocompatible circuit components that require lower levels of anticoagulation to maintain circuit patency, and advances in cannula design that permit single-site access for both venous drainage and venous return. And the result has been increasing enthusiasm for ECMO and severe hypoxemic respiratory failure. Regarding ECOR, the concept's not new. The Italians have been experimenting with the concept of carbon dioxide removal to allow for minimization of positive pressure ventilation since the 1970s. Unfortunately, trials conducted in the era of antiquated extracorporeal technology did not demonstrate a benefit. However, with modern extracorporeal technology, including less risk of bleeding from lower levels of anticoagulation, the ability to reliably maintain low extracorporeal blood flow rates, and the ongoing development of small cannulae that may eventually resemble dialysis catheters in both their size and ease of insertion, all translate into an improved risk profile, and therefore there's a renewed interest in ECOR and hypercapnic respiratory failure. So, very interesting. So, you're saying that with the emerging technology, this spurs you guys to think about more of the expanded indications for ECMO and ECOR. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, we think basically an improved risk-benefit profile of these cannulae and devices, we can start to look at expanding indications for ECOR and ECMO in respiratory failure. So, that might be a good segue for us to talk a little bit about your study on the pilot study of extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal to facilitate extubation and ambulation in COPD exacerbation. 
Can you describe a little bit about the study and the results from that study? So we conducted a prospective, unblinded pilot study of ECOR in subjects with acute exacerbations of COPD, leading to acute hypercapnic respiratory failure requiring invasive mechanical ventilation. It's well established that invasive mechanical ventilation is associated with a host of potential complications, including dynamic hyperinflation, ventilator-associated pneumonia, impaired delivery of aerosolized medications, and often deconditioning from immobilization. Likewise, patients with COPD exacerbations who fail non-invasive ventilation and ultimately require invasive mechanical ventilation have a mortality rate as high as 30%. The goal of this study was to test the hypothesis that institution of ECOR with subsequent control of hypercapnia and acidemia would facilitate early endotracheal extubation and ambulation in a group of patients at high risk for ventilator-associated complications and deconditioning. Inclusion criteria were patients between 45 and 85 years of age with a clinical exacerbation of COPD resulting in uncompensated hypercapnic respiratory failure requiring ongoing invasive mechanical ventilation with a pre-intubation pH less than or equal to 7.35 and a PaCO2 greater than or equal to 55. Patients with comorbidities that could limit recovery from respiratory failure, such as decompensated heart failure or advanced malignancy, were excluded, as were obese patients, in order to exclude concomitant obesity hypoventilation syndrome as an etiology for their hypercapnia. Likewise, because the goal was to use smaller cannulae and lower blood flow rates, patients with a PDAF ratio less than 250, for which higher blood flow may be required in order to achieve adequate oxygenation post-extubation, were also excluded. Because early mobilization was a large focus of this trial, patients who were unable to ambulate within the seven days prior to hospitalization were ineligible. Once patients were enrolled, they were initiated on ECOR and were extubated as soon as they passed the spontaneous breathing trial. The ECOR circuit was adjusted to achieve a pH between 7.34 and 7.42, with discontinuation of ECOR when that pH range could be maintained with less than one liter per minute of sweep gas flow. While on ECOR, heparin was infused continuously with a targeted activated partial thromboplastin time of 40 to 60 seconds. Medical management of COPD exacerbation was at the discretion of the ICU attending and consisted of steroids, inhaled bronchodilators, and antibiotics. Patients received active physiotherapy daily by a team of physical and occupational therapists that are dedicated to our medical ICU. A total of five subjects were enrolled. The mean age was 73, and all five subjects had a documented history of severe to very severe COPD and an average of two to three exacerbations requiring hospitalization per year, as well as chronic respiratory acidosis. Of those subjects who had previously been intubated for COPD exacerbations, the duration of mechanical ventilation had ranged from five to 12 days. All five subjects had failed non-invasive ventilation prior to enrollment due to worsening hypercapnia, increased work of breathing, and or increased somnolence, with a mean pre-intubation pH of 7.23 and a PaCO2 of 82. Patients were intubated for an average of 16.5 hours before ECOR initiation. Cannulation involved insertion of a bicable dual lumen cannula in the right internal jugular vein with the smallest cannula that was commercially available at the time of the study. All five subjects were extubated within 72 hours of ECOR initiation with a mean duration of only four hours. Only one subject took longer than five hours to be extubated because of residual sedation from their ECOR cannulation. All five subjects achieved ambulation with an average maximum of 300 feet walked, with an ambulation first occurring on average about 30 hours after being started on ECOR. Of the four subjects in whom Borg dyspnea scores were obtained, all of them noted marked improvement in dyspnea within two days of ECOR, correlating perfectly with correction of the hypercapnia and acidemia. All five subjects survived to hospital discharge. Four subjects were discharged directly home, and one subject underwent a planned lung transplantation and subsequently went to acute rehab and then home. Regarding complications, there were two clinically relevant non-major bleeding events related to ECOR, though neither event required transfusion nor premature decannulation from ECOR. There were no ECOR complications related to mobilization. 
In summary, we were able to demonstrate the feasibility of using ECOR to facilitate both early extubation and ambulation in a selected but very ill subset of patients with COPD. However, it's important to note this is only a pilot study and remains experimental. Larger randomized trials are needed to better define the subset of patients who might benefit from such a strategy, as well as to further assess in-hospital and long-term mortality, ventilator-associated complications, and the economic impact of ECOR versus conventional mechanical ventilation. Even under the most ideal circumstances, we do not foresee this strategy being applied to all patients with COPD exacerbations. So this was quite striking. I mean, it's a small study with a highly selected number of five patients but they were extubated in a very short period of time and ambulated. And it's certainly thought-provoking in that sense. Dr. Kreiner, I mean, acute COPD exacerbation is something that we in the ATS community and in the, in the ICU see commonly nearly every day. And the Temple Lung Center has among the most extensive experience in treating advanced COPD patients in the nation. What do you see as a potential problem with expanding ECMO and ECOR use in this very large group of patients that we see nearly every day in the ICU? Well, thanks, Michelle. Uh, I'd like to congratulate Dr. Abrams and his colleagues. It's a very thought-provoking paper, and it's, as we all know, uh, who treat these types of patients, this is a very important uh, problem. Uh, right now, when we look at patients who receive mechanical ventilation for COPD, there was a... Um, good paper in the Blue Journal about 18 months ago by Chandra and colleagues that showed that patients who receive invasive or non-invasive uh, mechanical ventilation have mortalities, 2008 data, in a data set of almost 17,000 individuals of anywhere from 3 to 8%. But if you look at the group of patients like was enrolled in this small ho cohort of subjects, who have a um, transition from non-invasive ventilation and fell that to invasive ventilation, their mortality is much higher, 25 to 30 percent, during that hospitalization. So it's clear that we have to do something more for this patient group and treat them with respiratory failure. I think the problems overall are the things that were mentioned by the authors in a companion paper and the accompanying editorial by Fan and, and uh, Brochard, that um, every technique that's new has its pluses, but it also has its disadvantages, this one being um, vascular catheterization, uh, it also requires anticoagulation. It requires not only doctors and nurses uh, working as a team, but also including a perfusionist and the person that will do the cannulation. So it really is a uh, form thrust effort of many individuals to make this work. And at many institutions, the capabilities of doing this when it needs to be done um, may not exist. So it's going to take some planning and thought and really much more work to find out exactly what patient characteristics would best respond to this therapy as an alternative to mechanical ventilation itself. So you raise a very interesting point, Dr. Kreiner. I mean, ECMO is not something that is available at many of the hospitals that our, that our members of the ATS work in. So you know, as an institutional leader, I mean, what do you see as potential issues for community hospitals and for larger hospitals about ECMO program if the use of ECOR use is extended to these larger, more common populations of respiratory failure patients? I mean, Dr. Abrams has said in his articles that, yes, more research is needed, but that for now we should be referring these very common types of respiratory failure um, who may need ECMO to these experience centers. Well, I think uh, your question, Michelle, has two issues to it. Do we know what patients need to be referred for ECMO for these different proposed 
entities, and I don't think we have enough data right now to say exactly what patient groups at what point in their course need to consider this as an alternative. So I think that more work needs to be done on that. The second thing is, how do you network with an institution that does do ECMO or ECOR to community hospitals that may not have those resources? And I think that really requires the individuals at institutions that do that to work with their nearby community hospitals in their geographic region to work as a kind of spoken hub sort of fashion to be able to have an integrated program that would take and integrate those patients from the referral community hospital into their system to provide therapies that are needed. So I think this gives a lot of opportunity for the pulmonary and critical care community to work together at the academic and community centers on having integrated programs that could provide their patient needs regionally. So one of the important questions raised by the accompanying editorial and that, Dr. Wynn, you had mentioned earlier, is that it's not yet clear what type of COPT patients may be beneficial. But having read these articles, is there patients that you wouldn't have thought about before as potential ECOR candidates that you may think now as a possibility for a possible referral to a center? Dr. Krenner? Yes, Michelle. I think that some of the um, patients that were identified in this small paper um, and also an accompanying article as well as editorial are patients that you might want to consider. Those who are listed for transplant that you don't want to keep them intubated for the issues of VAP that you would like to um, be able to uh, avoid mechanical ventilation and a risk of pneumonia with them. I think the other patient populations that weren't addressed in this paper you could consider are those who have a bronchopleural fistula. It's very difficult for it to close or heal even with tube thoracostomy. Would that patient group be benefited? Um, I think another patient group that wasn't discussed and would make sense from a pathophysiologic standpoint is a lot of patients who have uh, respiratory failure that receive mechanical ventilation due to COPD. Issues of static and dynamic hyperinflation is very important to that patient group in terms of how it affects the respiratory failure, the challenges that that poses to the medical team to ventilate them, and also the hemodynamic effects. And this, this technique that would lessen the need for mechanical ventilation or abrogate the, the length of that course may be a viable option in that patient group that's severely hyperinflated with respiratory uh, failure overall. So I think there are some niche groups of patients that would have, I would think, would be key characteristics that would benefit from this form of technology. Thank you. And now Dr. Abrams in his article, as well as the editorial, have indicated that more research is needed before establishing e-course an option for acute hypercapnic respiratory failure from COPD exacerbation. You know, Dr. Krinner, from the perspective of both a practicing intensivist, you know, COPD expert, and an institutional leader in your hospital, well, what kind of clinical trials and what type of results would you like to see before you would consider referring, you know, larger groups of patients with COPD exacerbation for possible ECOR? So I think one of the caveats of this paper is that patients with moderate to severe hypoxemia would pose a challenge for this this group of patients. So I think what are the limits of oxygenation failure that could be accepted with this technique? I think I need further clarification on. Um, The complications were minimal in this patient group. There was two that had some transient bleeding. 
But as you well know, in the ICU, there's patients where bleeding is much more of an issue, and um, I think the broader application would probably have a range of patient groups where that might be more problematic. And then vascular access, you know, patients that are very ill that have needs for cannulation for other forms of pharmacotherapy at that time, that might be an issue. One of the things also, I think the elements of the paper showed the ability of placing this technique and then ambulating patients uh, who uh, have respiratory failure with COPD was highlighted as a benefit, and that truly is a benefit. But I don't think we, I think as a critical care and pulmonary community, we have to do a much better job of ambulating all patients with respiratory failure, whether they have endotracheal intubation or tracheotomy. I think that we can do all a much better job for that. So I don't think we really need to rely just on this technique for early mobilization in our patients with respiratory failure, whether it's COPD or some other disease. So I would need to have better clarification of those benefits, too, in terms of ambulation as opposed to what we could do overall. Dr. Abrams, do you have anything else to add to that in terms of the kind of clinical trials that you see as needed and, and the type of results that needs to be demonstrated before we expand these used to common, common forms of respiratory failure? I agree with really all of Dr. Kreiner's points. I think they're all uh, very well said, especially uh, the point about dynamic hyperinflation um, and the benefit that could be obtained from avoiding positive pressure ventilation. We, while we could not quantify the amount of uh, dynamic hyperinflation that was going on on the ventilator and that may have uh, improved after extubation on ECOR, we noticed just subjectively how well the patients appear to be breathing once their CO2 and pH were corrected. And suppose that a lot of that may have to do with improvements in dynamic hyperinflation once they were off positive pressure ventilation. I also agree wholeheartedly about the, uh, the need for ambulation in all of our critical care patients. While this strategy did in these patients perhaps facilitate ambulation by allowing us to make sure that they were not sedated uh, and ambulatory. There is definitely a need from a uh, critical care standpoint to ambulate and rehab all of our patients. And from a lot that's already been published uh, by Dr. Needham and others, that's very feasible, that's beneficial. We need to be doing more of it. It's clear that early ambulation and physical rehabilitation would benefit uh, all the critically ill patients who are appropriate for that type of therapy, not just those in whom ECOR is instituted, nor should ECOR necessarily be instituted only to then allow for ambulation. However, in this study, these patients who were otherwise sedated on the ventilator did benefit from ECOR initiation, extubation, and were able to ambulate, whereas before they may not have been. So in closing, Dr. Abrams, how do you foresee ECMO and ECOR being used in about 10 years' time as the technology evolves and as hopefully some of these studies start to take place? So traditionally, the paradigm for ECOR and respiratory failure has been to use it as an adjunct to mechanical ventilation when ventilatory support is insufficient. However, ECMO and ECOR in their current forms are able to completely support gas exchange in many cases of respiratory failure, and there have already been reports of using ECMO up front in order to avoid the ventilator and its associated complications altogether. However, a significant limitation to its use is the lack of destination device therapy and the need for ongoing care within an ICU. With the potential for extracorporeal circuits, particularly the pumps and oxygenators, to become more compact and efficient, we foresee the eventual development of a portable pulmonary assist device that can partially or fully support gas exchange outside the ICU setting. In other words, a total artificial lung, 
which would completely revolutionize the management of respiratory failure, much in the way ventricular assist devices have changed the approach to heart failure. So that's very thought-provoking, and uh, it will be interesting to see if that's will come to be. Likewise, Dr. Kriner, in about 10 years' time, what do you see as emerging treatments for acute respiratory failure in COPD patients? And how do you see ECMO fitting in with these emerging treatments? Good question. Well, I think uh, there has been work on preventing exacerbations, and I think there's going to be more work on trying to prevent exacerbations um, so the patients don't get to this point in the first place. I think as we think of COPD more as a protein disease, as how it affects the whole body, I think the recognition of comorbidities in their treatment um, and how that would impact on acute exacerbations that provoke a patient with such a severe event that they receive mechanical ventilation in the first place will we'll receive um, more priority. I think a lot of the patients with COPD who present with acute respiratory failure, it's acute on chronic respiratory failure that um, provokes them to present and need this type of therapy. So I think more attention on how we treat patients with moderate to severe chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure as an outpatient with, with various forms of non-invasive ventilation or support might have a, a greater um, impact on their course and is ripe for more scientific review. And finally, we haven't done much different with pharmacotherapy with an acute exacerbation in the last 30 years. So I think much more research and efforts on how we treat a patient during that course would be important. I think in terms of ventilator management, uh, I think um, uh, the concept of uh, less is more uh, is going to take more of a hold on how we treat these patients that we know that taking a hyperinflated, very severely obstructed patient and ventilating them more aggressively would probably not help as much as it's going to hurt. And I think using techniques that are less invasive, um, less amount of uh, the magnitude of ventilation that we give them during that course, and using techniques such as which has been described in the last 20 minutes would be potentially helpful adjuncts to um, decrease the, the need for mechanical ventilation or invasive ventilation, and also improve the patient's outcome. Well, thank you, Dr. Abrams, Dr. Kriner, for this very interesting and thought-provoking discussion on the emerging uses of ECMO, especially in patients with acute respiratory failure from COPD exacerbation. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us on this podcast. Okay, Michelle, thank you very much. Take care. And I encourage all of our our readers of the Annals ATS and all of our listeners to refer to the August edition of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society um, for the complete article from Dr. Abrams on the emerging indication for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in adult respiratory failure and his pilot study of extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal to facilitate extubation and ambulation in COPD exacerbation. And also, there was a very interesting um, editorial by Dr. Edward Fan as well as Dr. Laurent Brochard on those two articles. And with that, I thank you all for your participation in the discussion and welcome you to another addition to the uh, um, podcast for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society.